welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we focus on the ongoing situation in Hong Kong. The current crisis began in June when throngs of Hong Kongers took to the streets to protest the extradition bill, but their fight continues to this day. Millions have marched, many while carrying the American flag and asking for the same rights that you and I have. It's an important topic, and I'm excited to have with us Jillian Melcher. She has not only written extensively on the story, but has spent time in Hong Kong and has seen firsthand what it's like for people on the ground. And before we bring her on, a little bit about Jillian. Jillian K. Melcher is the editorial page writer at the Wall Street Journal. She is a former fellow right here for Independent Women's Forum, and she's a journalist who has previously reported for National Review, the Franklin Center, the Daily Commentary, the Wall Street Journal Asia, with freelance writings appearing in Cosmopolitan, the Weekly Standard, the New York Post, and other major publications. Her foreign correspondence has also taken her to China, Iraq, Ukraine, and many other places in Europe and Asia, including Hong Kong. Jillian, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I know you and I were talking about the fact that since June, you have been to Hong Kong four times. I want to talk about what you've seen on the ground, but I think a good place to start is why we see Hong Kong in the situation to begin with, and and not just the extradition bill, but prior to that. So we're talking about a city that is part of mainland China, but hasn't been part of the government in the same way as the rest of China. So why, first of all, was Hong Kong separate? Yeah, so Hong Kong used to be a British colony. Um, and then in 1984, under Margaret Thatcher, the British were kind of trying to get out of the colonial business. Um, they decided to hand Hong Kong over to China, sign something called the Sino-British Joint Declaration. It's an international agreement. And basically what what happened is in 1997, um, Hong Kong was handed over to China. But the promise under the Joint Declaration was for the next 50 years, Hong Kong would be governed under one country, two systems. That means it's part of China but that Beijing promised in this international treaty that it was going to preserve everything from freedom of speech, freedom of the press, to religious freedom. Um, so that's, that's kind of where this story starts. Unfortunately, in 2017, um, China's foreign ministry came out out of the blue without permission from Great Britain, much less the Hong Kong people, and said that the joint declaration, this international agreement, was no longer uh, no longer had any practical significance, and that it wasn't binding for the central government's management over Hong Kong. So I think what we've seen is, particularly over the past decade, a gradual erosion of Hong Kong's rights, uh, a more aggressive position from China toward Hong Kong. And to Hong Kong people, this is devastating. They grew up with a colonial legacy, um, all the best of Great Britain, a system of rule of law, really strong courts, uh, respect for their freedoms. So I, I think it's been really agonizing this, for many Hong Kongers to see this under threat now. And has Great Britain said much? Have you seen any of the leaders there speak about this and what the Hong Kongers are going through? Well, they've said that the world um, expects China to live up to its obligation and that the joint declaration uh, remains as valid today as it did when it was signed 35 years ago. They say it's legally binding. But I always think it's important for international leaders to speak out on this because it's not just an issue of Hong Kong. This gets to the core issue of whether China is a, a good faith actor, whether it respects its international agreements. 
So Hong Kong is one of those places that's a litmus test for China's ability and its commitment to being a good actor internationally. So let's talk about then what took place in June. As you said, this came out of the blue, but what exactly did China do? It's about the extradition bill. What does that mean? And why were Hong Kongers so ready to protest, leave work, do whatever they could do to try to prevent this from happening? Yeah, this this was quite remarkable. So um, the Legislative Council, which is like their Congress, um, came up with this bill that they were very aggressively pushing forward. And what it would do is anyone in Hong Kong, I'm not just talking about Hong Kongers, but if you were an American businessman, if you even stopped down at the Hong Kong International Airport, um, under the extradition legislation, you would have been vulnerable to uh, have the Chinese government basically put out a warrant for your arrest, for your arrest. Um, pick you up in Hong Kong, haul you off to mainland China, where you'd be subjected to their courts, um, to their prisons, to potentially arbitrary detention, to all of these things that we know are problems within the Chinese legal system. So Hong Kongers rightly saw this as something that would totally negate rule of law in Hong Kong, that would basically subject them to a mainland China system of justice. And uh, they, they wanted to oppose this as hard as they could. So in early June, we saw a protest of about a million people. That's when I knew that this was going to be a big story. So I talked to my editors um, the next morning. We booked a flight and I was on the plane the, same, the next night. Arrived early on the morning of June 12th, uh, which was when they were going to try to push this forward. Um, dropped my stuff off at the hotel, ran straight out to the protest. And I think that was another really important day because Hong Kongers have a reputation for peaceful protest. Um, that day, I saw Hong Kong police respond to peaceful protests in a violent way. Uh, they started tear gassing protesters. People were running back into this upscale mall. It was just kind of this surreal scene, a place where I used to go shopping and go to the movies. All of a sudden was transformed into what felt a lot like a war zone. Um, and from there, it's, it's just escalated, I think. Um, so Hong Kongers were able to get the chief executive to back down on the extradition bill. She said she wouldn't pass it immediately. And then eventually this fall, she withdrew it. But what we've seen since then is sort of Hong Kongers greater anxiety. They don't believe that the Chinese government intends to leave them alone, intends to allow them to preserve their freedoms. And at the same time, some of what I saw on June 12th has gotten significantly worse. We've seen escalating levels of police violence, a lot of arrests of protesters who are behaved in peaceful activity, um, arrests that seem arbitrary. And so now this movement that began with the extradition bill has exp expanded into something much greater. Um, Hong Kongers want, uh, you know, withdrawal of extradition bills, but at various points, They've also demanded the right to universal suffrage. They, they don't want to participate in a rigged system anymore. They want to be able to choose a chief executive and legislators that actually will fight for their rights and represent them. And then in addition to that, they want, um, you know, the, the people who've already been arrested, they want a pardon for them. Um, so I, I think if you're looking at their five demands, uh, kind of what's at the core of those is pushing back on mainland China's encroachment into Hong Kong and also creating a system where there is accountability for police violence, where there's an independent investigation into how the police have behaved themselves. Because Hong Kongers, they've grown up in a system that is very cosmopolitan, it's, um, a place known for its rule of law. That's why it's an international financial capital. And they're, they're terrified that this is the end of Hong Kong. 
And I know for years, Hong Kong has been either number one or number two on the economic freedom of the world report. So as you were saying, this is a place where there is a lot of financial investment. I personally went there about a year and a half ago, loved the city, thought it was wonderful. And like you were saying, to see it transform. Now, I was not there on the ground like you were going through it, but to just see the images, it was just shocking to see it. Do you think that the the people of Hong Kong, when they started protesting, as you mentioned, peaceful protest, do you think that they thought they were going to be met with the violence by the Chinese military that they were met with? Well, right now it's the Hong Kong police. And I think that's something that China has done um, learning from Tiananmen Square. I think what we're seeing right now is a situation where you're not necessarily going to have the tanks roll into the street. You're going to have a much more slow-mo crackdown. So we've seen now more than 6,000 arrests. Uh, people who participated in even peaceful protests um, now facing up to 10 years in prison. That, that's, that's the risk when you go out and show up for these protests. So I, And then on, in addition to that, there have been pro-democracy activists that have just been going about their daily lives. And thugs, which many people think are affiliated or, or kind of egged on by the government, have jumped them and beat them up. So there are several reasons for people to be afraid. I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily going to be the tanks rolling in. But yeah, to Hong Kongers, this is a complete shock. I mean, when I lived there in 2009... I remember people saying that their police department was a, the, their pride and joy, that they were just so proud of the rule of law about how safe and clean their city was. And so it's complete, completely surreal to be out there and to be watching as, you know, in, in my neighborhood of Wan Chai, um, Molotov cocktails are flying. Um, you've got police firing tear gas and rubber bullets. There was one journalist who was actually shot in the eye and blinded in that eye. So they did something completely unprecedented on the part of the Hong Kong police. And unfortunately, that sparked a sense of hopelessness among a lot of protesters. Um, I really want to emphasize the vast majority of Hong Kongers who have participated in these protests have been peacefully, have been orderly. I've even seen them at times, you know, going and making sure they cleaned up the trash along the protest routes. But at the same time, I think one reflection of this hopelessness is there's a small portion of protesters who believe that peaceful protest won't accomplish anything, that they can only um, protect their rights through the use of violence, um, through vandalizing property that they affiliate with the Chinese government or Chinese businesses. And it's really sad to watch that happen because I think it, it muddies the water. It's certainly a point that the Chinese government uses as propaganda against the protesters. It wants to portray all of them as rioters and as unruly, disorderly, as violent people. And that just hasn't been the case from my experience. Um, these, these are, in many cases, um, 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds who are out protesting for their freedoms. They want what Americans have. And they've been able to articulate why those freedoms are important in a way that's just incredibly moving. They're mature beyond their years. And to give us some context for you, you talked about how many people have been involved in these protests, or at least when you decided to fly out there in June, you said about a million. How many people live in Hong Kong? Um, so I think the biggest protest so far was about 2 million, and there are about 7 million people living in Hong Kong. Um, so you're talking so about a, a significant, yeah, significant percentage of people who are stopping work, business as usual isn't going on, and willing to take the risk, knowing that they could be physically harmed, they could be put in jail, uh, to go out there and fight for their rights. Yeah, it's, it's 
really from all across Hong Kong society. And I think that's been one of the remarkable things for me to see. So in 2016, uh, there was the Umbrella Movement, which was another protest movement in Hong Kong. This one, people were occupying a downtown area, fighting for universal suffrage. Um, it wasn't ultimately successful, but that movement was really led by students. It was led by young people. What's different about this movement is when you go out and see one of these protests, it's literally people from across Hong Kong society. You have the young people who are kind of the heart and soul of the movement. But I've been out and interviewed a bunch of grandmas and grandpas that were out there saying we need to fight for our next generation. Um, when I was out there recently, there, there were people participating in the protest in wheelchairs. There were teachers. There were social workers, um, lawyers. I mean, just about everyone you could possibly imagine. Business people who are really concerned that if China destroys Hong Kong's rule of law, it will wreck the economy. Um, I mean, it's it's quite literally everyone participating. And I think you saw this reflected also in November, um, they had district council elections. That's one of the very few posts where Hong Kongers actually have the right to universal suffrage. They can elect these district councillors that are kind of like um, your local city councillors. They, they have power over the bus stops and the parks. It's not a huge political position. Much of the power is symbolic, but you saw Hong Kongers registering to vote uh, in record numbers. You saw them queued up outside the polls and pro-democracy candidates won in a landslide. So I think what you've got here is a broad base of support for the democracy movement, for the freedom movement. And a lot of Hong Kongers who realize that if, if they end up becoming more like China, that they will lose their religious freedom, that they will uh, lose their freedom of speech, their freedom of assembly, and that they'll, they'll essentially have to live in fear of an authoritarian regime. If you're out there talking to them, um, they're very knowledgeable about what's happening to the Uyghurs, the Muslim population in Xinjiang province, uh, that have, you know, at least a million have been put in concentration camps. And I think they're really fearful of this. Uh, this is, you know, a million, two million sounds like a lot of people, but it's not when you're looking at the biggest authoritarian country in the world. I think what they're doing is extraordinarily courageous, and I'm very worried for them. When we first saw the images of them waving the American flag, I, it, I think those of us here in the States watching it, it hits your heart in a certain way to see them doing that. Was... Do you think part of the reason they did that, not just to show we want the same rights as Americans have, but to also speak to us here to so that we can also use our voices to speak for them? Was that kind of a calling card by them for us to speak out? It was. It absolutely was. And one thing that's been somewhat helpful is Congress passed the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. What that does is um, the United States acknowledges that Hong Kong is legally and politically different than mainland China. And as a result of that, for decades, we've given them special privileges on everything from trade to banking to aviation. And that piece of legislation basically says that if China erases those differences, if it blurs the, the legal lines between Hong Kong and mainland China, that those privileges won't be afforded anymore. Now, that's important because a lot of Chinese communist cadres have their money sucked away in Hong Kong. So that's one source of political leverage. But yeah, what I hear from Hong Kongers, they were really encouraged that that passed. They think it'll make a difference. Um, but more than that, what they tell me is that we're on the front line here against China. Today, China is our problem. Tomorrow, it's going to be the world's problem. 
So look at Hong Kong. Look at whether Beijing is willing to respect its international agreements. Look how it treats us. And that's, that's evidence of what the Chinese Communist Party is. If you want to know what China looks like under, under this authoritarian regime, look to Hong Kong. Um, and I, I think they really see themselves not only on the front line of a, an increasingly dangerous protest movement, but on the front line of a geopolitical problem that's relevant to everyone. And there has been criticism of President Trump, many who think he hasn't spoken out in favor or in support of Hong Kong enough. Now, some are saying he has to do this for political reasons because he's working on trade deals with China. You mentioned Congress and what they did. Obviously, the president had to sign that and be supportive of it. Do you think that the president is having to toe the line between economically working on trade deals with China, but also showing he supports the rights that Hong Kongers have. Do you think that he's thread that needle well, or has it been muddied? Uh, you know, I think it's been muddy, but I think the big takeaway is, um, if you're looking at this, the Chinese state-run media, they were wailing and gnashing their teeth about the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. They were so upset, you would have thought it was the end of the world. I mean, it was really hyperbolic condemnation of, of the Hong Kong yeah, Human Rights and Democracy Act. But right after that, we saw extraordinary progress on, on trade. So I think the takeaway for the Trump administration here is that China may, um, may moan about this. They may be, may be quite upset about it. But at the end of the day, Xi Jinping is going to make these decisions um, based on sort of realpolitics calculations. And the thing to understand about China is, um, and this is something Hong Kongers understand very well, that the government in Beijing does not derive its, its legitimacy from the consent of the governed. Any claims to legitimacy it has, its whole social contract is based on the promise that it will provide economic prosperity for its citizens. So anytime you see something hurting the economy, um, it's putting Chinese Communist Party in, in jeopardy. I think it's, it's weakening their grip on power. Um, so I think that the United States has much more leverage than it has used to speak out assertively on human rights because, you know, I really think Xi Jinping and a lot of those cadres know that um, their, their grip on power is on the line here, that they need to have a strong economy. What is day-to-day day -day life right now for most Hong Kongers? We haven't seen as much coverage in the past couple weeks. Now, that could be the holidays on our part. But what is the day-to-day -day conflict like with the police and with the citizens? It's bad. To, to be honest, it's really bad. Um, so on Christmas, on Christmas Eve, on New Year's, you saw these protests where people showed up, where the police responded with a great deal of violence, where, you know, uh, firing tear gas into crowds, um, it's completely unpredictable right now. If you're in Hong Kong, you don't know if the subways are going to be shut down. Um, everything is completely disrupted. And we're seeing these protests stretch on to, they're now in their seventh month. So, and this has become not just a weekend phenomenon. When it started, people would go out protest on Saturday or Sunday. You'd have a sense of peace fall over the city during work week. That's no longer the case. Um, you see protests happening constantly, uh, and some of it's happening, you know, if you go to a shopping mall, a protest might pop up there, the police might come in and start firing tear gas indoors. Um, so I think there's a sense of fear, but also a real sense of determination. Uh, a lot of the people that I talk to say that if we don't fight for these freedoms now, um, we're going to lose them for good. And so there's a, a determination and also a weariness. I think there's also a little bit of 
fear setting in because, you know, in, in the early months of the protests, there is some optimism. There is some sense that they had won withdrawal of the extradition bill. But I, I think there's definitely a sense of um, there's no going back now. And what that means is it, it could potentially be quite frightening. And that is really how I wanted to round out this conversation is to talk about where you think thing go, things go from here. I think many of us watching this horrified by what's taking place, but also understand the reality of how brutal the Chinese government is and how they likely are not going to go away quietly and will continue even if they are biding their time and and doing, you know, of course, violence through the Hong Kong police, but who knows what happens in the future. What do you have? I'm sure you don't want to give a prediction, but do you see, Do you, are you optimistic? Do you think that they have I am not incredibly optimistic, um, and here's why. So I think you've got the protesters laying out five demands. They've got the withdrawal of the extradition bill, but we have not seen an investigation into alleged police brutality or misconduct. We haven't seen the release of those who are arrested. Um, authorities are still designating the protesters as rioters, which is something that can carry a 10-year sentence. And we still don't have any promise that there's going to be universal suffrage in Hong Kong. So I think that as the protests go on and as the level of police violence escalates, um, you're going to see more protesters taking to the streets. You're going to see more, unfortunately, engaging in disruptive behavior. And that's going to, it's kind of a vicious cycle where the more violent the police get, the more out of control the protests feel. And those things are just escalating with no end in sight. Now, if Beijing wanted to compromise, I think it could find a compromise that would be starting this independent investigation into the police violence and then with an amnesty potentially saying that, look, there were some protesters who engaged in illegal behavior. There were also some police that engaged in illegal behavior. So kind of doing a, a maybe like a blanket amnesty, I think, would be a path out of that. But there's been no sign right now that Beijing is going to compromise. In fact, what we've seen is um, increasingly harsh rhetoric, uh, state-run media saying that these protesters are essentially behaving as terrorists, that you guys need to stop taking to the streets because this can't go on forever and things might get worse. So I think on both sides, um, rather than searching for compromise, there's a real doubling down. And I'm not sure where that's going to end. Final question for you, for those listening, and I think many people feel this way, we wish we could do something. Is there anything that can be done? I know there's, you You have gone, you've written about it, you've written about it beautifully, um, trying to, I think, capturing the fear and the heart of the people who are worried about losing their rights. What do you think, whether it's government or individual citizens, is there a call to action? Is there anything that we can do? Well, I think passing the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act was an important first step. But I would say um, it's really important for our elected officials to keep Hong Kong in the forefront, to keep watching and to not sacrifice our values of standing up for people who want the same freedom that we have. Um, you know, it's easy to make the argument, I think, that if we're too harsh against China, that it's going to jeopardize chances on a trade deal. But that's not what we've seen so far. So if anything, I would hope that our elected officials, President Trump in particular, continues to take a strong line and say that what happens in Hong Kong matters to the world. Well, and Julian, I will add to that. Yeah. When, it, when it happens, Hong Kongers notice. 
um, it, it's quite remarkable. If, if Trump sweeps out something in support of Hong Kong protesters or if a politician does, the response on Twitter, they really take heart. Um, and that's the same thing that I've seen on the ground. They're watching what the United States is doing. Um, they want what we have. And every time we do that, every time we speak out on their behalf, I, I think it reinforces our commitment to the free people of the world. Well, Jillian, thank you so much for joining us and also your writing on this issue, even the security risks you take by going to Hong Kong and being on the ground and getting the real story and telling us what's really going on. So thank you for your work and appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. Before you go, I did want to let you know of another great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, that is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum. Thanks for listening.